All of you, I'm sure, have done this little thing with your uh, with your kids. Um, here's the church, and here's the steeple. Open the door, and where's the people? And uh, the kid, kids uh, giggle and guffaw. And then we say, uh, if I can get this right, here's the church, and here's the steeple. Open the door, and here's the people. And uh, kids giggle some more. I've, I've all, I've, uh, having been uh, a father a number of times, I've become convinced that uh, kids are always putting us on. Uh, they're laughing at us more than they're laughing at uh, what we're doing for them. I, I think they're thinking all the time we're playing these games. I wish they'd, uh, they'd uh, leave me alone so I could torment the cat and uh, work on manual dexterity and all these other things that children are supposed to learn. But nevertheless, we play all these games with them. It's a good game. It's good fun. But uh, it's, it's really very bad theology if you stop and think about it. The truth is... Uh, this is the church building. This is not the church. And not every church has a steeple. But uh, nevertheless, this is the church building. Open the door and there's the church. The only problem is it doesn't rhyme, so it's not, uh, doesn't work well. But it's much better theology. You ask the average person what a church is, and they will, they will get it all wrong. They'll say, well, you, you go down to, uh, to uh, Eustick Road, about midway between Cole and Fairview, and you look on the south side of the street and there's this building it looks like a Midas muffler shop and uh, that's the church no that's not the church as our sign plainly says out there that's uh, that's the place where the church meets the church is people and that's what we've been learning from the book of Ephesians Paul reinforces uh, our thinking along these lines over and over again the church is people it's uh, it's a new race it's a new society it's a new humanity that God has called out of the the aggregation that we call the world, where all the old differences that used to divide us, the, the uh, ethnic, national differences, the differences in sex, the differences in age, the cultural and class distinctions don't any longer make any difference. We're one, we're one race. There's only one human race now, not many races in the body of Christ second area where I think many people go wrong is in understanding the purpose of the church. If you ask the average person what the, what the church does, they'll answer in terms of intermediate or, or secondary purposes. They, uh, you know, they conduct Sunday schools, vacation Bible schools, they have choirs, organ recitals, and all those things. And uh, they teach the scriptures, and they have worship services, and what they don't realize is that those are all intermediate purposes for which the greater purpose exists of going into the world and make visible the invisible God. That's our, that's our main purpose. We're called to be the people of God in order to go into the world and make God known. And it's that that Paul has been uh, reinforcing in our thinking through the book of Ephesians. Let's turn back to that book, chapter 4. And let me uh, read for you the first paragraph, verses 1 through 16. <clears throat> It's lengthy, but I want to uh, read it all the way through so that you understand the big idea first, the general direction in which uh, Paul uh, takes us. I'm having a hard time seeing this morning. You'll have to forgive me. I don't know whether it's my eyes or the light in here, but I, uh, I cannot read my text, so if I uh, falter, somebody help me out here. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent, making every effort, bending every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led, captivity, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. 
And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of teaching, by the trickery of men, by the by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being joined and held together by that which every joint supplies, as each member does its part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, there's the passage, and there are a lot of very difficult ideas in those two paragraphs, but everything seems to revolve around two unities, which Paul describes. The first is the unity of the Spirit, which uh, is described in verses 1 through 6, and the unity of the faith in verses 7 through 16. Those are two separate unities, two commonalities, two things that we all share in common, unity of the Spirit and unity of the faith. The first, unity of the Spirit. Paul is talking here not about something that we create, but something that we maintain. The unity of the Spirit is the unity which the Holy Spirit, the NIV is correct to, uh, to capitalize the S, the, the Holy Spirit creates that unity. He's talking about this act by which God takes us out of the world and makes us one and drops all the barriers, cuts across all the national, ethnic, sexual distinctions and makes us one. It's that unity that he's describing here, which he uh, further elaborates uh, in terms of a sevenfold uh, oneness, beginning in verse 4. There's one body, not a whole bunch of bodies, though we may be divided denominationally into Methodists and Baptists and Pentecostals and Catholics and and Presbyterians, and, and uh, Plymouth Brethren, and any number of denominations. It's really only one body. Most of the distinctions made are distinctions based on very subtle differences in doctrine. But uh, as God looks at us, though we may attend different churches, if Jesus Christ is Lord, if we've committed ourselves to him as Savior and Lord, then we are in one body. There isn't a Methodist body, and a Lutheran body, and a in a, a Pentecostal body, there's just one body, which is Christ's body, Christ's community. Furthermore, there is one Spirit, one Holy Spirit. There is one hope of your calling. He's referring to heaven. There isn't uh, a Presbyterian heaven and a community church heaven. There's only one heaven. By hope, I think, for myself, I think Paul's consistent use of this expression is referred to our blessed hope, which is our going to be with, with our Lord. When our bodies will be redeemed, our character will be perfected, and we will enjoy eternal fellowship with our Lord. That's our hope. And there's only one hope to which we've all been called. Furthermore, he, he says there is one Lord, only one Lord Jesus, only one head, one faith. I think here he's talking not about uh, simply the fact that we all believe, but uh, there is one set of beliefs. That is, there is one system of belief to which we all uh, uh, accede. We, we concur. We agree. We believe the same things. Now, that sounds strange when you think of all the different beliefs that people have, represented by different churches and different denominations. But as I said, most of the differences are, are, are minor modes of baptism, uh, types of church polity or church uh, government and organization. Uh, differences in the way we view future events. When it comes right down to it, there is one set of facts which Christians basically agree upon. And whenever you see these uh, creedal statements in the New Testament, they tend to be very simple. They have to do with uh, four or five or six things. Basically, the person of Christ, who he is, his deity, the incarnation, uh, his death, burial, and resurrection, his substitutionary atonement, the fact that he died for us, and on that basis God forgives us, and his, his ascension to glory, his present rule, the proclamation of the gospel, the necessity for an evangel that is a, 
uh, the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Those are the, the essentials, as Paul spells out in passages like 1 Timothy 3.16 and the latter part of Luke when he goes through the Old Testament for the disciples and explains to them the essential things that they need to believe. So that when it comes right down to it, uh, there, there's a small body of facts around which we fellowship. And the other things are peripherals. They're not that important. They shouldn't divide us. shouldn't separate us. There's one, one set of facts, one faith which we enjoy in common. One baptism. Uh, one baptism by the Spirit. The Spirit takes us uh, out of one set of circumstances, out of the kingdom of darkness, as Paul puts, us in, puts it, and he translates us into the kingdom of light. He identifies us with our Lord Jesus. And in water baptism is a symbol of that baptism. And if you have been identified with Christ by belief and you've been baptized into that uh, as a symbol of that belief, then that's all that's necessary. If you go from one church to another, you don't have to be baptized again. There's only one baptism. And uh, there is one God and Father of us all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul is not a universalist. He's not talking about all the people in the world, but all those who form the body of Christ. They have one one God and, and Father of the family. Now, those are the unities. Those are the commonalities. Those are the things that we share in common, and that's what binds us together. It doesn't make any difference what color we are, what race we are, what sex we are, what age we are, what culture we come from. The body is, uh, is a congregation rather than an aggregation. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a unity based upon a unity created by the Spirit of God. It's composed of Jew and Gentile and Greek and Turk and Pole and, and Ukrainian and, and Oregonian and Californian and Idahoan and, and uh, small children and gray panthers and, uh, it, you know, men, women. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Paul says neither slave nor free, Greek nor, uh, nor Scythian. Uh, those things don't matter any longer. We're one. We're held together by these seven bonds. Whenever we send a letter to, uh, or a package to our son in Hawaii, we always get strapping tape and strap that thing so it won't fall apart. That's, that's what Paul is saying. We are strapped together, bonded together by these seven unities, these seven things that we share in common. Now, Paul's emphasis here is on something that the Spirit has created, but we are to maintain it, he says. Maintain the unity of the Spirit. How do we do that? Well, he says, by walking worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Well, how do you work worthy, walk worthy of that, of that call? Well, he, he describes for us the steps that we have to take in order to work, walk worthy of the call with which we have been called. Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance. We have to work hard at these things. We have to bend our will to one another. We have to submit to one another out of, out of love for Christ. The, the, the way to keep a body like this together, you know, we come from all sorts of backgrounds. We're very different. Uh, some of us don't share much of anything in common except these seven, these seven elements, these seven commonalities. We're very different. Well, how do we get along? How do we maintain the unity of this body? How do we keep this church from splitting or, or any other church? There's one church I know here in town that's divided four times in the six years that I've been here. How can that sort of thing, uh, how can we put an end to that sort of thing? See? Because of the, the dreadful impact that it has upon the society around us. How in the world can we preach peace to people on the outside when we don't demonstrate it uh, ourselves? Well, Paul says it, it's easy, but it's hard. You, you need to be humble, he says. It's pride that causes contention. Pride is, uh, is, is Satan's sin. Satan wanted to be the center of the universe. He wanted to be the middle of everything. He wanted everything to, to revolve around him. He wanted to be noticed and appreciated and applauded and accepted and uh, recognized and, uh, and constantly given affirmation. He wanted everything to center on him, and that's what pride is. And, it, and that's what splits churches. This feeling that nobody appreciates me, nobody takes my uh, word for anything, they, they don't listen to me, they don't uh, recognize me. Uh, and, and in contrast, Paul says, no, 
And we need to be humble. Set, set your rights aside. That's how the, the unity of the Spirit is maintained. And secondly, through what he calls gentleness. It's the word for meekness in the New Testament. A non-defensive spirit. It's a loving response to, uh, to injustice. It's a refusal to retaliate when somebody does something unkind or ungodly to you. You may have to go to that brother and, and appeal to them. You may have to explain yourself and why you did what you did. But, but Paul says, we don't have to be defensive. We don't have to protect ourselves. God will take care of us. I don't have to always prove that I'm right. God will, will justify us and defend us. As he did Moses when Miriam assaulted him, ostensibly because he was uh, he was he had taken too much authority on himself. As we know from the story, Miriam's real problem was that she was a racist. Moses had married a black woman, and that upset Miriam, and so she attacked Moses. And when she did, Moses went off into his little tent, and he said, "God, you're going to, have to take care of this. I can't defend myself." And God did, as you know, he he well took care of the situation. And, and God will do the same for us. I remember some, I can't remember whether it was four years ago or eight years ago when John Smith, our 400 meter Olympic hopeful, was uh, disqualified uh, from the Olympics because he had jeopardized in some way his amateur status. And uh, the media uh, appealed to him to sue the uh, Olympic Committee. And his response was uh, uh, Smith, who is, who is a Christian, responded, No, he said, Vengeance is not mine. I'll leave it. To the man upstairs was the way he put it. Well, that's a non-defensive, meek spirit. And that's what Paul says is necessary to preserve the unity of the body. And third, there's patience, which literally is a long fuse. A refusal to blow your stack when, when somebody uh, mistreats you or misjudges your motives or does some evil thing against you or overlooks you. And forbearance, which basically is putting up with other people's weaknesses and, and limitations. It's, it's tolerance to the nth degree, just waiting for people to, to come around and uh, not uh, being hostile toward them because, they, because they're weak or because they fail or, or rejecting them because they, they don't measure up to our, to our standards. In Colossians, Paul's take, Paul takes another look at this same uh, idea. If you want to turn with me to Colossians 3, this is the parallel passage. And he says exactly what he says in Ephesians with some elaboration. Verse 12, Colossians 3.12. There's Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians is the second book in line. And so as those who, who have been chosen of God. That's, that's us, the people of God. Not, not, you understand, not this church exclusively, but Christians around the world. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. We've been called into a relationship with God to be a holy people, to be a distinctive people, to be different, to be counterculture. That's what the word holy means. Unique and distinctive, unlike the rest of, of, the, of the race. Holy and beloved. Put on a, a heart of compassion, kindness. Uh, that word is used in Greek classical literature for good wine. It means mellow, to be kind, gentle, merciful to people. Uh, humility, there's our word again. Gentleness, that's the word for meekness and patience. Forbearing one another, allowing for, for grievances. And forgiving one another, allowing for wrong that someone has done to us. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you forgive. In other words, the same measure of forgiveness extended to us should be extended to others. To what extent has God forgiven us? Well, he's forgiven us an infinite debt, and therefore there's no one who can run, up, run the account up to the point where you know, we, we can never forgive them. Jesus told a story once about a, a man who owed $10 million and he couldn't pay him. And his creditor forgave him, and he went out on the streets, and he grabbed someone who owed him a dollar eighty, and insisted that he pay it back. And his original creditor called him back in and said, "You don't understand. You don't understand. I forgave you a ten million dollar debt. You've got to forgive your brother." And that's the position in which we stand before all people. It doesn't make any difference what anybody has done to us, what they've said about us, how cruel and unkind they've been. We we have to forgive. 
And then he goes on in verse uh, 15 and says, Let the peace of Christ rule or arbitrate or call the decisions in your, in your, in your thoughts, in your mind, in your heart. This is not uh, subjective peace. This is not a feeling of peace. It's rather the objective peace that the Holy Spirit has created. It's the peace that we have now with God and the peace with one another because of the cross. And Paul is saying that needs to be the standard by which we evaluate all of our actions. Whatever we do, we need to maintain peace at all costs, no matter how much it hurts. Christ uh, paid for the church with his life. That's the value he places upon that body of, of believers. And we need to, we need to view uh, the church with that same uh, spirit. It, at, at any cost to ourselves, we should maintain peace. Now, let me say, to balance things out, that we do not believe in a cheap peace. There is a time that we may have to, uh, uh, we may have to make a division in the body, but it's on the basis of truth. James says the wisdom that's from above is first pure and then peaceable. We don't operate right on the basis of peace at all costs, but truth. And sometimes in the maintenance of, of purity within the body of Christ, we have to take a stand on truth that will divide us from a brother. But may I say that happens very, very rarely. In my experience, I have never seen a church split over doctrine. Invariably, it's over personalities, methodology, someone who got hurt, someone who had a grievance against someone else, and they begin to gossip and, and churn up uh, dissension within the body, and before long you have two warring camps, and nobody's willing to, to humble themselves and ask for forgiveness and set things straight, and so they go on their separate ways, and you have two uh, bodies where, where Paul says there's only one. And, and, and so what Paul is saying is that if we're going to preserve that unity which the Spirit has created, we will do so at great cost to us. It'll cost us in terms of humility and meekness and patience and tolerance and forgiveness toward one another. But that's how we go about uh, preserving the unity that, that our Lord has, has created. Now, in verses 7 through 16, he uh, turns to another issue, uh, that of the unity of the faith in verse 13. Everything revolves around that issue now in uh, these, these, these uh, verses from 7 through 16. Paul says, To each one of us grace was given according to the measure of, of Christ's gift. By us, he means us. Us guys. We, the body of Christ, those of you seated here and in churches throughout the world. To each one of us, grace was given. Now, that's the word that Paul uses for a, a special endowment, a unique gift, a supernatural capacity to serve the needs of the body of Christ. He refers to his own commission and call as an apostle to, uh, to an act of grace. It, Paul's point is that it all comes out of God's goodness. It's not because we deserve it or we have the credentials for it or the background or training or personality or, or anything else. It's that God, uh, out, of his, out of his love and his mercy and his grace, just lavishes upon us all the things that we need to, to feed one another and nurture one another and build one another up so that we can be a stable uh, body of, of believers. Paul says, to each one of us, Grace was given. That means all of you have some endowment from the Spirit of God that will enable you to serve this body. No one was behind the door when the gifts were handed out. Everybody has one. That's what he's saying to each one of us. Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift, which uh, simply stated means that Christ isn't a penny pincher. He isn't niggardly. He isn't stingy. His, his measure of giving is infinite. It's demonstrated by the cross. He gave everything. And so when it comes to providing for a church like this one, in terms of gifts and capacity to serve, he just enriches all of us to an infinite measure. And what follows is a Old Testament quotation to corroborate that, that idea. He goes back to Psalm 68 and uh, uh, refers to a description of the king in that Psalm. In the original quotation, it refers to one of the Judean kings who goes off to war, uh, comes back, ascends the throne, and uh, enriches his subjects. And he says, God is like that. He's like a king. 
who uh, wins a great victory, triumphs over his enemies, comes back, and then as a result of the spoils of war, he, he uh, distributes good things to all of his subjects. And then Paul says this ultimately refers to Jesus, who is the king. He's like that. He went off to war. He won a great victory, and he, and he came back, and he, 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 just, he just lavishes on people all the good things that are, are the result of this, of this victory. And uh, these difficult verses uh, 9 and 10 are simply a further uh, elaboration of that idea. He, he descended, that is, he, he took off his, his robes of authority, his position of, of, uh, of authority at the Father's right hand, and he came to earth, and he walked the earth as we did, and he died for us, and they put him in a tomb. He descended into the earth, and he went to hell for us. I, I fully believe that Scripture teaches us that Jesus went... Uh, uh, to to the degree to which uh, we would have gone to pay for our sins. We all deserved hell for our rebellion against God. But Jesus himself took that, that penalty uh, so we won't have to. And uh, then he was exonerated and justified in the spirit, as Paul puts it. He was taken out, uh, resurrected, and uh, now is ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, in a position of authority over his kingdom, dispensing gifts to his, uh, to his subjects. And what's the measure of his gift? An infinite measure. He just wants to pour it out and pour it on. Whatever we need to serve one another is supplied as a result of Jesus' gift. Now, uh, in the verses that, uh, that follow, Paul uh, underscores uh, four of these, uh, these special capacities. Verse 11, he gave some to be apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors slash teachers. It looks like there are five gifts here, but in reality there are only four. Prophets, apostles, evangelists, and pastor teachers or shepherding teachers. It's very clear from the text. It's not, it's not clear from our English translations, but there's no question that that's what Paul has in mind. So there are four gifts here, two of which I think still exist today, and two do not. Now, uh, he is, this is not intended to be an exhaustive list of all of the gifts which the Lord has given to us. It's, it's suggestive, and it, these are the foundational gifts, the basic gifts, which are absolutely essential for a church to grow to maturity. And they are four. The first is the office of a prophet the gift of prophetism. Now, we've talked about this in the past. A prophet is someone who receives direct revelation from God and who predicts the future with 100% accuracy, and then there is a strong indication, as I've pointed out, that a prophet also had to be an Israelite or a Jew. Now, that's the one that uh, is often questioned, but for myself, I think a prophet had to be an Israelite who predicted the future with total accuracy and uh, who received direct revelation uh, from God. All of our Old Testament was written by prophets or was written under the authority of a prophet. And some of our New Testament books, and we know from the book of Acts that there were prophets that were functioning during the apostolic period, during the first years of the church, before they had a completed collection of New Testament writings. But it seems both from church history and from uh, what we observe today that the gift of uh, prophecy uh, came to an end when our New Testament collection was complete, wasn't needed anymore. Now, I'm not saying that uh, at some future point prophets could not arise again. They may. Uh, Revelation 11 seems to indicate that there will be prophets who carry on that ministry uh, shortly before the Lord comes back. But uh, nevertheless, if they appear, they have to have the credentials of a prophet. They have to be a Jew predicting the future with total accuracy and receiving direct revelation. And I do not see anyone who fulfills those uh, criteria today. So for myself, I think the gift of prophecy is simply not in existence. The second gift is that of uh, an apostle. Now, apostle is someone who was sent out by our Lord with his special authority. Now, I, I know that some people say, well, missionaries are apostles, and that they carry on the same ministry that that the early apostles, the first apostles uh, had. They plant churches and they translate scripture. But again, for myself, I think that's changing the rules in the middle of the game. That's redefining a term uh, in a different way from which it was originally used. Originally, apostle 
meant someone who was directly commissioned by our Lord, such as the original twelve, or Paul, who was arrested on his way to Damascus by the risen Lord and commissioned as his apostle, and sent out to speak with his authority. When the apostles taught and when they wrote, they wrote with the authority of Jesus himself. As Paul puts it when he writes to the church in Thessalonica, when you receive my word, you received it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God that is at work among you. And when Paul writes to Corinth, to uh, people that were terribly uh, uh, confused about their sexuality and were struggling in that area, and Paul writes on the issue of fornication, and he says, I want you to understand that what I say is not just a bit of good advice, but it is a command of the Lord. So the, these apostles were very uh, self-conscious of their authority. had no question about their position of authority in the church. Now, for myself, again, I do not see anyone functioning in that capacity today. The apostles uh, all perished at the end of the first century. John was probably the last to go, and there are no apostles today, nor anyone in their, in their lineage. But it doesn't matter, because we have the word of the prophets and the apostles right here. This is it. The Old Testament prophets, the New Testament prophets, the apostles, uh, uh, their, their preaching was written down, their letters were preserved, and we essentially have what the apostles and prophets said to the ancient church today. So we don't need their ministry today. The ministries that continue are that of an evangelist and pastor-teacher or shepherd. Now, an evangelist is someone that we would call today a missionary. Uh, for myself, I, I, I think the term missionary probably connotes far more than it denotes, and we ought to rethink that term and perhaps come up with a better one. And the one that, uh, that suggests itself to me is simply the biblical term evangelist. Because an evangelist is someone who's on the vanguard of the church. They go where, they're like people on Star Trek. You know, they, they go where no one has ventured to go before, and they, they preach the evangel. They proclaim the gospel to people that have never heard it. They go where there are no churches, and they plant churches. They, they, they preach to people, and they gather the results of their preaching, and they preserve the results by giving some basic instruction, and they plant a church, and then they go someplace else. And they do the same thing all over again. I think, for example, Young Life Crusade has an evangelistic uh, ministry, and, and the crusade staff people are essentially evangelists. They go to the high school crowd who, by and large, would never darken the door of a church. They go where they are in order to befriend them and to share the gospel with them. Campus Crusade for Christ, InterVarsity, and others that are working on the campus uh, are evangelists. And uh, missionaries that we send overseas, the Levitts, the Browns, others, are evangelists, essentially. They're there to plant churches, uh, to proclaim the gospel and plant churches. The fourth office that Paul describes is that of a pastor-teacher. And that's uh, what I am, and that's what uh, about 18 or 19 other people are in this uh, congregation. The elders are the shepherd teachers. We don't have a senior pastor as such. Uh, there is only one senior pastor, and that is the Lord, who is the chief shepherd. That's what senior pastor means, basically. Or chief shepherd means senior pastor. Uh, the rest of us are simply teaching elders teaching shepherds. And uh, it's our responsibility to, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 3, the metaphor that he uses, is to water. Evangelist plants a seed, and uh, pastor teachers come along and they water. They nurture the seed until it begins to grow. And that's how you grow a church. An evangelist goes into an area and he plants a church, and, and the elders who have teaching gifts and who are appointed as shepherds come in and they begin to expound the scriptures and water the seed and it begins to grow and, and you have a maturing uh, church. Now, as, as Paul describes their ministry in verses 12, it is contrary to what we normally think. Look at verse 12. He's, he's told us that apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors are given to the church to do what? For the equipping of the saints... For the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, if you have a King James translation in hand, you probably have a comma between the first and second phrases. It would read, for the equipping of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, 
for the building up of the body of Christ. That's what one commentator calls the fatal comma. Because it should not be there. That's a major mistake in the King James translation. Because it gives the impression that the pastor teacher does it all. It appears that those are three activities of the uh, senior pastor and those that are vocational uh, Christians who work with him. Our job is to uh, teach you and to do the work of the ministry and to build up the body of Christ, and that is totally wrong. That translation has given rise to much of the clericism that uh, characterizes the evangelical church today, just this idea that the pastor is the main man, he's the senior executive, and he does it all. Like the church is envisioned as a pyramid with the pastor perched precariously up on the pinnacle of the thing, and and everyone else is arrayed uh, in, in varying levels of subordination underneath him. Or as John Stott puts it, his analogy is a bus driver. The, the pastor's up in the front of the bus uh, with his hands on the wheel, and everybody else is seated behind him. And, and he says to everyone, just uh, be quiet and uh, leave the driving to us. And that is totally wrong. It is totally wrong. In the first place, the New Testament knows absolutely nothing of single-handed leadership. There's not one example of one person exerting leadership and authority in the church. As a matter of fact, it's condemned. John uh, uh, speaks of a certain Diotrephes who loves to have the preeminence, who's the big honcho, who calls all the shots, uh, who is the leader par excellence. You know, that, that's wrong. That's wrong. There is no such thing as a human chief shepherd or head pastor. It's contrary to everything we see in Scripture. The Scripture envisions leadership in terms of multiple leadership, team leadership, a group of men who are designated as, uh, in various ways in Scripture as bishops or as elders, but uh, who have the responsibility for shepherding the flock and teaching the flock. Multiple leadership is the pattern in the New Testament. And secondly, the pattern is every member ministry. Because the way this passage actually reads is that it's the function of the eldership here to equip the saints, that's you, to do the work of the ministry. That's your job, not mine. The, the way the pastor is traditionally conceived is that you know he he is the uh, counselor, he is the evangelist, he is the senior executive officer, he's the one to whom we bring all of our problems. Everything revolves around him. He's the only one who's equipped. After all, he's been to seminary, and that's what prepares him for that sort of thing. See, but that's wrong. You know, we 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 all tend to. We're just natural hogs, I guess is the only way to put it. We, we want to hog the ministry. And what we do is deprive you of the joy of doing the ministry. I, I, I believe in professional counselors. I think there are some, some problems that need uh, a professional touch. And we have some professional counselors here that we refer people to, and, and they're a great help to us. But frankly, about 90% of the counseling that I get involved in could be handled by anyone in the body of Christ. It's simply a matter of listening long enough to understand what uh, the underlying problems are and showing compassion and mercy for people and establishing a relationship with them and then opening the scriptures, which is our authority after all, and encourage them to respond in obedience to it. And, and how do we handle sin in the body? You know, someone is struggling and failing and struggling and failing and, and then they get rebellious and, and they're resisting the truth. What do we do? Paul didn't say, bring him to the pastor, or our Lord didn't. He, he said, if you see your brother sinning, you go. You go. And if he won't listen to you, take two or three others and, in a spirit of love and, and with real compassion and understanding and an awareness of your own limitations and just gently wash their feet with the word. That's, that's your responsibility. That's your privilege. Not mine. And, then, and don't, don't bring your friends down here on Sunday morning for me to evangelize. That's your privilege. As you go out into the world and, and you befriend people as our Lord did in the world and, and you begin to live your life openly in front of them and you begin to share the gospel with them and, 
and they respond, then you have the joy of being aligned with, with our Lord and his task of, of searching and finding the sheep. I, I don't want to take that privilege away from you. And none of the elders do either. My responsibility and those of the elders that the other elders that serve here is to lay down a base of truth, help you to understand what Scripture says so that you can get involved in the work of the ministry. As Paul goes on, he, he says that the result will be that we will all attain, the, the Greek word means to arrive, it's used in Acts for travelers who, who reach their destination, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, and then we will no longer be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine or teaching by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceiving scheming. And I think what Paul is saying here is that there are three marks of a mature church. If you want to measure a church, these are the measurements that you ought to apply. Number one, do they have unity of faith? That is, are they fellowshipping around the facts of the gospel? Now, again, as I said, there, there are a lot of peripheral things about which we're uncertain. And Christians have always disagreed. Such things as modes of baptism and, and uh, future things, whether our Lord will come before or after the tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation or, or whether the kingdom will be... Uh, uh, will be a, an earthly kingdom with David reigning and our Lord reigning here or whether it, all of the Old Testament prophecies are to be spiritualized in terms of the, of the church. <clears throat> all of those issues are, are marginal. They're peripheral. But there is a, a body of facts about which we can all agree, the essentials of the gospel. And the question is, do, do we know them? Are we aware of what they are? Do we understand the significance of the incarnation? And... Uh, uh, our Lord's uh, atonement for us. And uh, what these great terms like reconciliation and, and redemption and propitiation, what these terms mean in terms of our salvation and the significance of, of his resurrection and his present reign uh, in, in authority over his kingdom. These are the essential things that we need to, to know and believe. So that's one thing you'll discern in a church that uh, is maturing. They're, they are unified around the basic facts of the, of the gospel, the truth that, uh, as the prophets and apostles taught us. The second thing is that they are growing to a full knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. By that, he means a knowledge of who God is and how he thinks, what he desires for us. Most of us are awash in doctrine. We know the facts. We've got them down cold. But we don't know God. We just know a lot of truth about God, but we don't know Him. And the reason we don't know Him is because we don't obey the truth we have. The biblical theory of knowledge is that as you obey truth, you're given more truth, and you come into a deeper and deeper knowledge of who God is. And secondly, we don't approach Scripture from that standpoint. The purpose of all Bible study is to know Christ. As Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them you find eternal life. And there they which testify to me. You will not come to me that you have eternal life. So that all of our teaching ought to direct us toward a deeper and deeper knowledge of God. I was sitting in a meeting with a friend, with some friends just this last Wednesday. And one of the men in that group had just recently been fired from his job. And he was quite upset and we were trying to encourage him. And at the end, as we prayed, one of, one of the men in the group prayed, Lord, don't set John's hope on finding another job, but set his hope in you. Help him to put his roots down into you, and, and, and may you be his stability and his strength during these times. And I thought, now there's a man that knows God. He doesn't just know facts. He understands how God works and how he thinks and what his plans are for us. And uh, so it's, it's not enough just to know truth. We need to let the truth take us on into a deeper and deeper awareness of, of, of who the Lord is. We need to know him. And then thirdly, if these things are true, if we're unified in the facts and we're growing in our knowledge of God, we'll be stable and no one can deceive us. Do you see that? One mark of immaturity is instability and gullibility. 
People believe anything. They're swayed by every theological wind that blows. Every book that someone writes attracts their attention, and they're off on that track, and they're off on another, and, and they're following men rather than Christ, and, and captivated by the most recent theological trends, and, and forgetful of the basics and the things that, that really matter. I, I may get myself in trouble for saying this, but I'm going to say it. I, I really think one of the the trends now blowing through the church, which is nothing more than a fad, is this preoccupation with New Ageism. The books, there's just a spate of books that are being read, written on this subject, and it seems like every time you turn on Christian radio, somebody is preaching on the New Age movement. And, and Constance Cumbie and Dave Hunt and others are writing books. They're rolling off the press. It seems like one every week on the, the horrors and the dangers of the New Age movement. And my reaction is, phooey. What's new about the New Age movement? And you know, that started in the, in the garden. When Satan said to, said to Adam and Eve, or said to Eve, you can be like God. You don't need, you don't need God. You can be a God, God all by yourself. And that philosophy has been taught to us by the world since, uh, since the year one. That's nothing new. That doesn't just come through New Age uh, thought and philosophy, it, it comes through Better Homes and Garden, and through Hustler Magazine, and through uh, The Sound of Music, and through Reader's Digest, and National Geographic, and as a matter of fact, uh, if you read through Constance Cumbie's book, to her solution, her solution is just a flat-out humanistic solution. It is not a godly solution. And she, in a, in a, in a sense, has fallen into the same error which she which she uh, attributes to the New Age movement. Now, all I'm saying is, you know, I, I, I just want to say let's be stable and let's put our roots down in the Word and not be blown back and forth by every little wind of doctrine that comes along and let's do the things that really count and, and keep the priorities straight. The other thing I'd like to say is that we don't need to fear the incursion of cults and non-Christian groups into our body if we're taught by the Word. The best defense is a good offense. We don't need to go out and attack other groups that we consider to be non-Christian groups or leaflet or pamphlet them. We don't have to. Jesus said, Every bush that my Father has not planted shall be rooted up. Leave them alone, he said. So we don't need to be fearful and full of dread when, when... Cults and other groups become powerful in, in, in our midst. What we need to do is get about the business of knowing God and proclaiming the truth. That's what a mature body will do. Because people that are like that, who have their roots down in the Word, are not shaken. They're not tricked. They're not deceived. They see through evil in all of its forms, all of its subtle manif manifestations. And the result, he says, is that the whole body will be just like the human body, drawing strength from the head being held together by all the connections in the body. I think he's referring back to the unity that the Spirit has created. He said it's like the ligaments and the tendons that hold our bodies uh, together. That's what God has done for us. And we draw our strength from him, and then every member does its part. That's how you have a functional body. You know, if one eye wants to look out of the same hole with the other eye, that's, that's a funny-looking body. It doesn't function well. Or if your kidney decides to uh, cut out because it's not noticed and you never stop to say thank you, kidney, for what you've been doing, uh, you'd, you'd be a mess. Now, every member functions, every part of the body operating the proper way. And as we draw our strength from the head and we learn from him and we permit the prophets and apostles to, to teach us through the, through the shepherding uh, teachers in our in our midst, and we'll grow up to maturity, and we'll have an impact upon our uh, upon our city. Now, there's one phrase, and with this I'm done. It ties everything together. It's Paul's uh, statement that all of this is done by, as the translations put it, speaking the truth in love. Now, what Paul did is uh, he took a noun, took the noun for truth, and he made a verb out of it. And if we were to translate it literally, it would be truthing in love. Uh, that expands the concept beyond mere proclamation of the truth. The word literally means dealing in truth, studying the truth, knowing the truth, being immersed in the truth, letting the truth 
control you. Living out the truth. Using the truth in your proclamation of the gospel, in your witness to others, in your counseling, in your discipleship, and, and doing all of that in love. So you, you, you can't have one without the other. Truth without love brutalizes people. Love without truth is just so much sentimentalism. But when you combine the truth, a loving, gracious spirit, when you're overlooking faults and flaws and you deal with your hostility and your pride and your tendency to defend yourself, and, and when I do this, and when we're forgiving and forbearing and patient with people, and we deal in truth, we live it and we proclaim it, and things will begin to happen. They'll happen in our body and they'll happen in the world. The world will sit up and take, take notice as the barriers drop between us, as they see the acceptance and the love and the commitment toward one another that we have, as they see a struggle to maintain the unity of, of this body at, at all costs, and as we, as we deal in truth out there before the world, we live it and proclaim it, and the world will take notice. The servant of God, as Paul puts it, must not strive, but be patient with all men, gentle in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If, peradventure, God will grant repentance to those that have been taken captive by Satan to do his will. We, we have the, the privilege of delivering people from Satan's captivity, setting them free, but it will only come about as we speak the truth in love. Let's pray. <clears throat> Will you take a minute to think through your own relationship to people here in the body? And if there's someone that uh, you've, been, you've had resentment toward or an unforgiving spirit, would you uh, judge that and put it away? And would you make a commitment in your own mind to go to that person and set things right, to ask their forgiveness if they're aware of the injustice or the wrong and, and to set things right? And will you reaffirm, again, your commitment to other members of this body? The relationship that exists among us is, is very much like a marriage. And as couples, we know it's God's will for us to never entertain the thought of divorce, to not even think in those terms, but to commit ourselves to working out our, our problems in a godly manner. Would you take that attitude toward the rest of the body, and, and in your own heart, just remind yourself of the, of the unity that Christ has, committed, uh, ha, has created and commit yourself anew to preserving that unity at all costs. Lord, we thank you that we can gather here because you're the one who's gathered us together. You've given us a reason for loving one another and accepting one another that transcends the natural uh, uh, inducements to love. We realize we're very unlike one another. We, we don't always have things in common, but, but we, are, we do hold in common the fact that we're part of your body and we have a unity that's supernatural in which we must maintain. Help us by your grace, Lord, to exhibit the the character and the characteristics that will preserve that unity. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.